Hey everyone, thanks for checking out the Human Performance Outliers podcast. In case you haven't noticed, we are now up on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com backslash HPO podcast. You can also just click on the link in the podcast notes and it'll take you right to our page. For the listeners that have already joined us, thank you so much. Your support is greatly appreciated. Uh, We have some pretty cool goodies that we're rolling out for the Patreon supporters, including a front-of-the-line Q&A, some early podcast release options, as well as the chance to even join the show. So please consider checking out that page if you haven't yet. Also, if you do listen to us on a podcast hosting site, if you have the option, please consider subscribing. By subscribing, you'll get the most up-to-date episode as soon as it's released. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. A ButcherBox subscription plan uh, that will send you meat. So it's a real kind of hassle-free, don't have to go to the grocery store type of approach that gets you high quality meat right to your door. Uh, Sean's been using ButcherBox for a while. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the, on the, uh, in the sous vide and then reverse searing, or then searing it up in a cast-iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know, looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass-finished products that you might get in the store, this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Yeah. And folks, if you want to support the show, go over to ButcherBox, get yourself an order of some high quality meat and type in the promo code HPO and you'll get a discount as well as some free bacon. And you can eat that meat knowing that you help keep this podcast going. Thanks again. Um, Zach, are we recording? Yeah, I just hit it. So we're good to go. Dr. Connor, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, you know, it's obviously you and I don't agree on everything. Uh, but I mean, and, and, and certainly, you know, we're at the advantage advantage here because I'm going to ask you some questions and, and then you get to answer them. And then maybe we can turn this around some other time. And hopefully this will be the first among a series of discussions. Because I think, you know, what I was impressed with with you and uh, Chris Kresser's show, and I thought that was a very good discussion, but there's just so much more. You know, there, there's so, you know, I think you guys probably scratched 10% of what we could yeah. talk about with regard to, you know, the different dietary strategies. And I think we should get the, you know, get the kumbaya stuff out of the way ahead of times. I mean, I would say you and I probably agree on 95% of stuff with regards to health. I mean, I think we can all say we shouldn't be smoking. We should all be exercising. We should all try to keep our weight at a healthy weight. I think there's all, there, there's a lot of common things we should do that I think, you know, we would all agree on. And then it comes to where we differ in our dietary philosophies. Well, let me just, uh, um, I'll even tell you, Sean, not to interrupt you, but I finished your Joe Rogan recording just yesterday. And we actually share a lot of challenges from the medical system for being outside the box and promoting lifestyle over surge. I was a stent guy and I've taken tremendous heat in my career, not to the level you have, but uh, I've been under the microscope and I, you know, I listened to that and I said, holy moly, I, I really know exactly what he's talking about when your competitors and peers say, you know, you're not towing the line and just pumping money out of a system. So 
uh, I just wanted to share that with you. I, I feel for what you've been through, and uh, uh, hopefully that'll be made right because the whole medical system needs to start putting lifestyle over, over you know, rushing to the operating room, rushing to the cath lab. Uh, well, I understand. It's lucrative. We all get it's lucrative. Chris Kresser agrees. I mean, Chris's book, I, we get, we're three peas in a pod, oddly, on that uh, outside-of-the-box thinking. Or maybe we are prime ribs in a, in a yeah, butcher sure. box, although I'll step outside <laughs> of that box. You know, and, and it's because orthopedics and, and, and interventional cardiology are some of the most lucrative uh, fields for the hospital. I mean, that's where the money, you know, that's what pays the light bills. I mean, that's what keeps the psychiatry department running. That's what keeps the PEDS department running. So they, you know, they very much have to have that part of the income. And when you when you step back and say, I don't really want to do this much of that anymore. It's kind of interesting. So interestingly, I just I'm just finishing up my reapplication for license, uh, and so I should have that back, you know, probably within a month or two. And so it's, it's finally a good thing after three years of legal battles and fighting. It's all turning out for the good, which is which is which you know obviously I'm happy about. But it was a kind of a it was kind of an eye opening experience to me to see um, where the priorities really are. And and unfortunately, I agree with you 100. percent I do applaud. You know, regardless of our differences in opinion on dietary strategy, I do applaud the uh, desire to get away from these uh, these interventions, which are just what I call high price band aids. You know, when you put a stent down somebody, and again, there's some controversy as how how truly effective that is. You know, I'm sure you're aware of that 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 some of that literature coming out there. Where do you, where do you go in there and whatever whatever you do, yeah. uh, whether I put in a knee replacement, something those are band aids in my view. And you know, what what should have happened is we should have prevented the need for the stent in the first place. We should have prevented the need for the knee replacement in the first place. And I think those things are not unattainable goals. And I think you know, hopefully, uh, we can figure out the commonalities where we can figure out well, what what actually works. So let me just ask you a couple just basic questions, Zach. I apologize. Uh, you know, I'll let you <laughs> jump in here, but Joel and I have a lot of you know, kind of interesting things that we can go back and forth on. So let me just get your overall position. You know, there's a difference between veganism and plant-based. Right. How would you describe yourself? Um, I'm plant-based moving to veganism with a kind heart. Plant-based meaning no one, I, I don't eat vegan junk food with any regularity. It's a real problem. It is maybe a bit better than the processed junk at Wendy's, Hardee's, and McDonald's that majority of America eats, but you can do that in the vegan world now with burgers and dogs and mac and cheese and artificial ribs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, not proven, I mean, I'm all for health. I started this all through my medical training, and I have eaten plants for nearly 40 years now as my exclusive choice. But uh, the veganism would be that original definition in Britain in 1944 that we're going to not use animals to further our own welfare. We're going to come up with alternatives. So we're not wearing leather. We're uh, very active in animal rights and all. And I think those are important. The environment has kind of, you know, rocketed into that decision. Uh, but though usually veganism, you're talking more about animal rights and this environmental uh, concern and activism. But fortunately, this is all going to be solved because we're going to have factory meat. We're going to have factory leather that never involves an animal having to be in a factory and suffer death or whatever you want to describe it as. And hey, we're going to have that within two, three years. A company called Modern Meadow is making genetically altered uh, leather and uh, egg whites are being made genetically altered in factories. No chicken involved. So. Uh, most of the vegan activism movement is actually embracing this oncoming technology to say, 
you know, it really will be an interesting world when we can wear a leather jacket that a cow didn't suffer for. Then you've got to ask the question, you know, does that offend you or not offend you? So I welcome that there are solutions that are going to take away some of this uh, ugliness that's out there, you know, that uh, has caused such division. So a majority of my new shoe purchases are not leather. I don't wear my leather jackets anymore. I don't throw paint on people that I see that are wearing leather. Um, it's interesting that I have a daughter that works for Gucci. She's a big exec. They don't do fur anymore. And, you know, Tesla does leather-free cars. I mean, there's just an interesting uh, awareness going on that I think will solve that uh, that rift that is emotional and legitimate on both sides. And uh, it does definitely exist. Yeah, it's an interesting, uh, you know, topic about the the uh, the the lab cultured meat. I think there's a lot of lot of a lot of stuff we can go down on that stuff. And and yeah. uh, but I mean, you know, from what I'm understanding, you know, there are there are people out there that uh, think that, um, and I and I see them from time to time, probably more frequently than I'd like to. Uh, people that are very vehement that, that if all people do not t- adopt a vegan diet, we should legislate that. The people that that uh, choose not to, to to do that are somehow evil people. Uh, I, I, I assume that is not your your yeah. view. I mean, I think you're taking a more circumspect view and saying that I believe that you believe it's better for health, uh, you know, and some other 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 potential uh, things right. that you may believe it's good for. But I mean, but again, there are people out there, and I see this unfortunately with, with social media. We get the worst of the worst. You get the best of the best, and you get a lot of good things, but you get a lot of the idiots out right. there. And I, I liked your comment right. on Joe Rogan about don't be a dumb vegan, yeah. because I think there's a lot of those guys out there that that represent, and I think sometimes some of the worst. Uh, enemies of veganism are some of the vegans themselves and some of the things they, they say and do, which kind of makes me scratch my head. Um, do you believe, as Dr. Milton Mills does, that we are strict herbivores? Do you believe that? Well, you know, his basis is biblical. I know Milton Mills, uh, a, a hospitalist in Washington, D.C., pretty well. He's got a book coming out about the biblical roots of plant-based diets. Uh, he's a very spiritual, wonderful man. And you go back to Genesis 1:29, and you can make the case that, uh, uh, you know, every religion, even Muslim, has a vegetarian or vegan movement within it that's ancient and uh, honors the religion, maybe at even a higher level. Judaism certainly does. Um, are we, uh, you know, I think the human body is unbelievably adaptable. And we can agree on that, whether you're, uh, you know, an Inuit or a Maasai warrior or 100% plant-based or, you know, apparently since 1930, 100% meat-based, we learned some science, um, you know, the human body can adapt. I, you know, uh, my clinic is geared towards longevity. Um, you know, you can live to age 30 or 40 and procreate and do your evolutionary biology of making kids and keeping the species alive by probably, you know, a hundred different variations on diet and the body will adapt to it. Uh, so it's really a play on, uh, do you want to be alive, healthy, and free of chronic disease at age 60, 70, 80, 90? What's the best path? Of which food is only one slice of it. It's an important slice, which is why we do agree on a lot of stuff. And then, you know, you have to throw in uh, legitimate concerns about the environment nowadays and which diet favors a planet to live on. Even, um, who is it? Ted Turner says, what the hell do you want to have billions of dollars and live in a shithole? Speaking about his passion for the environment, and that is pretty much a direct quote from Ted Turner. So 
Um, yeah, I am. Uh, do I think we're an obligate herbivore? No. I, I, you, you seem to be alive a year and a half, or I'm not sure if it's two years now into your dietary experiment. And I know there's people that are into it longer than that that are alive and appear to be thriving. Uh, we're learning. I mean, you're teaching us that this is possible, whether it's desirable and should spread or should be uh, limited, uh, you know, are issues we can talk about. Let me ask you, um, Zach, I, you know, j- jump in anytime you want here, Zach, but let me, Dr. Connell, let me ask you, you know, would you agree that uh, chronic di- Western chronic diseases has, 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 has uh, certainly escalated over the last Hundred to to certainly fifty years. Would you, would that would that be fair to say? Yeah. yeah, you know, sure. And you know, some of the best examples, and you know them, Japanese people that moved to Hawaii, their rate of heart disease, diabetes, obesity go up about three times. They moved to California, it's ten times of what they had in Japan, and that's within one generation. It's not genetic shift, and that's always you know uh, a very poignant example. But absolutely. I mean, we know heart disease existed thousands of years ago. The mummies have calcification if you can't scan them. Ochi, the Iceman that fell in a crack 5,000 years ago, had heart disease. He actually had genetic uh, abnorm- abnormalities detected in his ancient uh, skeleton corpse. But until the right around World War II is when heart attack rates started to skyrocket in modern American cities. And we all know. God, look at those obesity charts by the CDC. 1985, hardly find a state with you know overweight people, and now uh, 30, 35%, even 40% of citizens are overweight or obese. So yes, it's clearly, I don't even think it's 100 years. It's uh, Most of this is 50 years. You gotta tie it to changes in the food industry, changes in fast food. Uh, maybe, you know, environmental pollution, but I think food is, you know, by far number one. Yeah, I would agree with, I would agree with that. Go ahead, Zach. Yeah, I was just going to say, I think, um, one of the, well, one reason I'm as excited you're coming on, Dr. Khan, was that, uh, um, you know, I've done some shallow dives, albeit, but it's like something kind of interesting is like, and I know you've talked about it in, in more depth in past is like these, like, uh, societies that have high rates of like centurions or these blue zone areas and, you know, my, my kind of surface thought with that is always like, well, here we have like this really like kind of broad, um, wide view of people who are likely doing a lot of things, right? Um, and are certainly doing some of those really big things that we've identified as important for health and longevity, right? Um, and then it's, you know, it's like anything, we try to pick one of those things out and look at it like very close and attribute everything to it or a lot of it to it. And then it ultimately comes down to like, well, how much weight do we put on each one of these like uh, pillars or each one of these like uh, examples of health? And, you know, the ones that I think of often are like quality sleep, you know, exercise. Um, I'm probably a little bit above and beyond what's required for exercise, but, you know, I get the idea. Um, And then nutrition. Um, So when you look at the blue zones and the centurions and stuff, like what, what are the one, what are the things you're looking at? in terms of why are these people living so long? Why are they so healthy? And why is it that when we do remove them from their, I guess, natural habitat, for lack of better words, does things kind of go off the rails? Yeah, you know, and I think the reason you're seeing the rise of lifestyle medicine, you know, as the tag word is because nutrition is part of that. It, It isn't always sufficient. And as you say, nutrition with smoking, good nutrition with smoking or poor sleep or lack of exercise, or uh, even isolation, depression, uh, living in an area where there aren't sidewalks, it's not optimal. So, 
it, you know, I like that the blue zones, there isn't one factor and there isn't one diet. Those five areas of exceptional, you have to have a rate of centenarian survival 10 times more than the average public. So it's, it's really a pocket of very elderly, healthy people. I mean, it's not one thing. There is beautiful graphs. Everybody can Google blue zone. There's a great graph. There is some core dietary features, and in those five areas, legumes, a pea, beans, lentil food group that is sort of beat up right now by Steve Gundry and the plant paradox, in my view, inappropriately, is really the only central food uh, amongst them. But they have family connection, they have faith, they have religion, they have walking, they have sleep, they have optimism, uh, they have fast days generally. They are things in common. And you know, they have parsed out. Why does, I think the most interesting blue zone is Loma Linda, California. It's only an hour east of LA. I mentioned it to Joe Rogan. He wasn't quite up to date. He should go visit Loma Linda because it's actually a modern American city, yet there's exceptional longevity. And it is, it's been parsed out. Nuts are actually, I think statistically, number one or number two. Nut consumption of their diet, when you do multivariate analysis, plays out as much as fruit and vegetable consumption. But they have faith-based, they have exercise, they don't smoke with a much higher frequency. Same thing, so that's blue zones, and then um, uh, the centenarian pockets are basically overlapping. Um, uh, where else do we know about you know, a comprehensive lifestyle? I, when you talk about the reason I got fired up as a uh, junior attending in the cath lab in 1990 was I was living a plant-based diet lifestyle and exercising and sleeping and not smoking. But Dr. Dean Ornish published a small but powerful randomized study. You could reverse coronary artery disease using a lifestyle. And it was diet and social support. And it was yoga and meditation, stress reduction, and not smoking. And, you know, and that was powerful. So I've always taught. I have in a graph three feet to my right that every patient sees. It's nutrition and it's fitness and it's sleep and it's sex and it's social support. And way at the top might be sauna and chelation and supplements and some exotic crap and stem cells coming down the road. But, you know, and there is, of course, we don't see eye to eye exactly on what that diet is, uh, particularly in my little niche of trying to reverse coronary disease and people that uh, would like to see exceptional survival. But, yeah, lifestyle rules and um you know, same thing, though, if you mess up your diet and you do the rest right. I think food is the single most important thing to nail down. One other question with that, too, is like I want to just rewind for one second to go back to like what you said in the beginning um, when you were talking about kind of setting up uh, a process of lifestyle medicine versus like, you know, here's a, a pill. Now go do what you were doing before. Like how how hard of a path was that? Like what did you have to kind of do to kind of break away from the norm, I guess, and get that type of a structure set up? Because um, from every like podcast thing I've listened to you and read about you, it sounds like you've got a, a pretty good thing going over there in Michigan between the restaurants and your practice. So like what what did it take, I guess? Like how hard did you have to work to get people's yeah. trust and have that be the, the go-to yeah. as opposed to the pill? Well, one, you got to be authentic and lead the life. I mean, it, you know, there are physicians that struggle with their weight, even though they're trying to do the right thing. But, you know, you, you got to authentically say, I eat this way, I exercise this way, I focus on sleep, I focus on stress. You got to be a fairly happy, not angry person. They're not going to take your message if you don't look the part. And some of that you can't control. Some is genetics and, uh, and the rest. Number two is some education. Uh, Sean talks about, you know, educating himself outside the standard medical system. I did that both within and outside of university, kind of extracurricular meetings and conferences and stuff. 
And third, very honestly, I did not bad. I did pretty well with this, even when I had those eight to fifteen minute follow up appointments. I started using technology, websites, a video. You know, we we formed a support group in Detroit that favors plant nutrition that people can go to and see other people and associate with. Um, and just like Sean started up a Facebook group of, you know, carnivores. But you know, you need a tribe to run with. So now I have. I think the answer is be authentic education. And the bottom line is I can now take time with people to really get them immersed in this that I didn't have in the eight to 15 minute, uh, you know, visit uh, format. But I did still hit a few home runs using, you know, simple teaching tools. The bottom line is there's a statement, you can teach a man nutrition, you can't make him drink like the horse analogy. And I don't care how much time you have, there are some people that aren't open to it and there are some people you you talk for three minutes and give them a tool a dvd a book a brochure and man they see the light they've never seen before that the word reversal the word prevention coming out of a physician's mouth that's powerful stuff joe let me let me just go back to some of this population-based stuff and, and i think you would concede that it's not the ideal tool to tell us what to do there's a lot of you know even with the multivariate analysis you still aren't sure if you're you're totally isolating what you want to isolate when we look at and, and we've kind of gone back and forth this in a little a little bit on Twitter recently about Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong yeah. has a very long life expectancy. I don't think anybody would question that data. I think there's pretty good data out there showing that they are prodigious eaters of meat. I mean, they, that does show that they have that's a significant component of that. Sure, they meat, fruits and vegetables and fish. That's there. They also have low smoking rates. Um, and when we contrast to folks like the Inuit, the Inuit who also have a very high meat-based diet, tr- both traditionally and, and even today, but their smoking rates, and, and, and I don't know if you know this, but the Inuit, their smoking rates right now approach about 65%, which is outstandingly high. It's some of the highest in the world. And so when we talk about their lifespan, and currently their lifespan is about 68 years of age, which is about the same as vegetarian-based India and, and Bangladesh, um, we have to look at smoking and wealth. And, you know, I think, I think, well, you know, if you want to live long, be in a wealthy country. I mean, that's probably, in my view, you know, because you well, have access to health care, you have access, and, you know, and climate right. may, may play a role in this. But I think, you know, right. we, we, we have to say, what, you know, proper sanitation, access to clean water. You know, when we talk about these third world countries where everybody's dying in their 40s. I mean, that's a little bit different discussion when we have these developed countries. But, I mean, in general, you know, you live in Luxembourg, you're going to live a long time. If you live in Iceland, you're going to live a long time. And these are these are countries that, that don't shy from eating a lot of meat. So, I, so again, I have to say, um, so let, let, let me just, let, let's talk about, when you when you recommend a plant-based diet to somebody, I assume you're not telling people to eat a bunch of processed food and sugar and, and that sort of stuff. And so the commonalities, you know, between where we where we say these things are bad, you know, and let me ask you this. What do you think about there's been a lot of talk recently about uh, industrial p- produced seed oils as being potentially problematic? Where, where do you fall in line with, with that particular topic? Yeah. So let's see how good my brain is, because you, you went through a whole bunch of topics. Sure. You know, one, I agree. Everybody would agree. Population based nutrition studies are far from perfect. The pure study, which many of your followers know about probably the largest published nutrition study, you know, 12-year follow-up, but only one food frequency questionnaire at the beginning. Uh, and plant-based research gets criticized for that, even if they're doing every four-year food frequency questionnaires, which is what the Adventist Health Study, where at least they went back every four years and asked a 58-page questionnaire to update. 
Uh, that's a problem in the pure study. They didn't differentiate complex from refined carbs. It was just carb calories, which is a rather uh, uh, imperfect way at the least to do it. So, And the major finding, I agree, the pure study is poor countries have poor health, and maybe eating dairy in those countries is a better option than starving because there actually were countries that uh, suffer serious starvation. But, you know, that is an example of some flawed uh, population research. Nonetheless, randomized clinical trials with placebo and such are, are, are drug trials. They're basically nearly impossible to do long-term in nutrition. We saw the PREDIMED study. Now we know it's a fairly flawed and retracted and revised PREDIMED study trying to take 7,000 people and have them eat a certain way for four or five years. You know, no matter what resources you have, that's nearly impossible. So, you know, we can do a randomized clinical trial. Uh, there was in the news yesterday a, a three-week randomized clinical study of low-carb, high-fat diet versus their baseline diet on LDL cholesterol. And LDL went from 5% to 107% increase in three weeks with an average, I think, of about 45% increase. You know, a short-term study like that in a metabolic ward we can do. So we're left with population studies, and they can cause us to ask questions, and we can do a small little study, or we can just take the mass of the data, and that's usually what's done. I mean, there are so many. we got the EPIC study and the Oxford studies and intraheart studies and Adventist studies and the rest. What does the, you know, the 50,000-feet view overall do? And I find the when I present to patients, if they're walking in my office and they're having angina, walk into the mailbox and known coronary disease, and they're been told by somebody you need bypass next week, I'm not pulling out the soft stick. I'm pulling out the hard stick. You know, you need to do it just the way the research said. We're starting today on a whole food, plant-based diet. We're not adding oils. We can look forward to your angina decreasing in the next three, four weeks dramatically. If I do a stress test in a few months, I expect it to be dramatically better. And the more you adhere to that, no matter how hard you think it is or not, the more you will benefit. And it works for me just like it worked for Dr. Dean Ornish, published 1990, Dr. Esselstyn of the Cleveland Clinic, published through the 90s and 2000s. It works. That's not my standard approach with people. I like to whip out the Harvard School of Public Health Food Plate 2011, which is a variation on the USDA food plate, which is fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and protein, of which they define you can pick animal protein, you can pick plant protein, and drink water, not cow's milk for the majority of your fluid during the day, and a few other twists there. They have a little bottle of olive oil there instead of some of the other, uh, instead of butter, lard, and processed uh, seed oils. Uh, you know, the processed seed oil thing, I mean, the, 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 again, the broad swath of data I'm usually referring to, and it may not align with you, is, but if you look at coronary heart disease, largely these are Harvard School of Public Health studies of 130,000 doctors and nurses. If you take butter and lard and replace it with vegetable oils high in polyunsaturated fat, you will reduce the risk of coronary heart disease on average by about 23%. And nobody's ever done the low, no oil portion because it was either infrequent or just wasn't built in the questionnaire. So few people eat a low or no oil diet. There's no relevance there. So I take out the Harvard School of Public Health study and I present that. Um, seed oils, so you know, seed oils may be better than butter and lard for cholesterol. I am still an LDL heart, you know, hypothesis uh, advocate. I think 98% of the cardiology world is. I think 20 or 20 societies around the world that put out guidelines on saturated fat, cholesterol control, heart disease are aligned. 
I don't think it's all a big controversy. There's no uh, big broccoli money going to cause the World Health Organization to talk about limiting, or even the USDA. The USDA said lower cholesterol as low as possible. They didn't put a number on it in 2015-2016. But um, is there a lot of bad seed oil out there? Is there a lot of bad corn oil? Is there a lot of um, both calories and oxidation and uh, imbalance omega-6, omega-3? Yeah, there is. So if one is going to have oils in their diet, I I know one thing I'm going to say nobody will like. I mean, uh, extra virgin olive oil has a fair amount of support. The only group I really advise not to are overweight people and people with serious coronary issues based on some endothelial function data. There actually is some data. It's called the... um, uh, what they do, the Leon Hart study in Leon, France, where they used uh, canola oil instead of butter. I know that's like a bad word to say, but it actually was part of the program that caused these people to have a dramatically decreased incidence of coronary side effects after a heart attack. Uh, Monsanto has destroyed the crop of canola, so you have to buy most oils. I encourage people to buy organic. They're very pesticide. Uh, ridden. But do I want people having a big bottle of Wesson corn oil on their counter like I grew up with and Crisco? Uh, you know, the trans fat issue has largely been solved. But no, I don't. I, I very, That's, a, again, we're, we, I think we both would say, you know, at least the standard paleo model, dairy's out and most oils are not looked on favorably. And, you know, that's and, you know, in the standard paleo, at least the Lauren Cordain version of paleo, which I know you're not paleo, Sean, but you've done paleo in the past, you know, uh, berries, leafy greens are an important part of the diet. So uh, I am I look for these groundwork where we can agree upon and not beat each other up over everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, we look at the human diet, the human species diet, you know, these, these, these seed oils, Crisco, cottonseed oil, you know, late 1800s, 1880, 1890s, when it was introduced into the human diet. So obviously we can argue about what we ate from an evolutionary standpoint. And all of us will agree. We were not eating those oils. We were not eating Twinkies. We were not eating Doritos. I mean, those things obviously weren't around. So I think we can all agree on that stuff. Let's get more into your, you know, cause you're a cardiologist and I certainly, you know, I respect what goes into into the knowledge base that goes into that stuff. And so anytime we have an expert in there, it's nice to talk about what they know. So you've pointed out things like coronary artery calcium scan, carotid yeah. intermediate thickness testing. You know, you, you point out some other studies that I think, and I think you, you correctly make the point that we talk about biomarkers and then we talk about actual indices of disease. And I think that is a discussion that I think is very important to have. And I try to reiterate that I tell people, you know, your lab values – can fluctuate daily. It doesn't matter yeah. what what variable we're testing. It can go up and down. As you may or may not be aware of the work of a guy named Dave Feldman, who's yeah, showing Dave. that LDL is very di- is very dynamic based on di- diet. And we can argue that's a, that's an that's an unusual dietary intervention or not. But it, it it does show that there is some dynamic variability, which has been known. I think I've known that since about the 50s or the 60s. So it's not really new information, but it's kind of being it's becoming new into the public consciousness. And so when we look at things like coronary artery calcium scan. You know, you're, I know you're a fan of the CIMT. Um, you know, I think we get closer to finding out, you know, where we really stand. And and you know, in the, in the study you just pointed, the 30-day study about the, uh, the the LDL cholesterol. I read that. I know you posted. I read it. And, and the one thing that, that was striking to me is that the the the, the variability in the results. Some people yeah. it only went up a, a smidgen. Some people up went up quite a bit. And what is the difference between those people? I don't think we know. And so let's talk about. You know, what you consider to be, I mean, uh, you know, obviously 
LDL is part of the equation of cardiovascular disease. I mean, it, you know, when you right. scoop out, you know, there's cholesterol in there. No one's discounting that. There's also calcium there, but no one's telling us we need to reduce our calcium levels in our blood. You know, I mean, I, you know, I think there's a, you know, there's a certain, you know, I think we're finding with, with LDL, it's not just LDL cholesterol. Is it a per- particular type of LDL? Is it, is it the APO, APOB portion? Is it the oxidized portion? Is it the glycated portion? I think there's more and more stuff that, to come on this, and we need to know more about it. And in what situations that 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 is an issue versus, you know, is it just a blanket statement that every guy – you know, and I'm sure you don't do this, but I, there's a lot of people that they go to see their they go see their PCP. They'll roll in there. Their LDLs one, you know, 128. Their their totals 207. And the doctor says, okay, let's put you on Lipitor. And and, and that's the end Every, of the discussion, right. which I think is a bad. I think that's a that, that's problematic for many people. But yeah. anyway, let's talk about triglycerides, HDL, uh, right. insulin, insulin sensitivity, diabetes, smoking, all the things that you think are components of cardiovascular disease that we need to watch out for. Let, let's just give um, you the time to talk about that. I'm going to put that in front of my thing. This is a diagram I saw in a vitamin-based magazine called Life Extension Magazine, a company out of Fort Lauderdale. I don't have any ownership. And that's supposed to be a heart artery, and that's 19 daggers right. that can cause atherosclerosis. And that is something I buy into. This always, you know, there's something called composite causes. Cholesterol never was the only cause of coronary disease. If it's sufficiently high, like a 12-year-old with familial homozygous hyperlipidemia, all they may need is an LDL cholesterol of 500 to have clogged arteries at age 15 and need a stent or a bypass. So LDL may be necessary, but it never was the, or ApoB may be necessary, but it never was the sole Cause so I, I mean I kind of like that diagram. What's on there? Fibrinogen, homocysteine, lipoprotein, little a, inflammation. Whether you measure it by C-reactive protein or others, um, you know now we have potentially TMAO. I have a kind of an updated one on the wall in my office. Heavy metals. Lead has come on in several recent publications in the United States population is a serious issue with cardiovascular disease because water pipes are decaying. Lead in the water, lead uh, causes tremendous oxidative stress. Your mitochondria aren't working well, and uh, your cells are aging, and then uh, you just can't handle LDL being in your bloodstream and getting under your intima because now you've got excessive oxidative stress. So, um, you know, it's still we're in a uh, Tom Dayspring, MD, a very well known lipidologist, just spent seven hours with Peter Atia. I, I lectured with him years ago, and his word was, it's an ApoB world, boys and girls, and everything is, you, you know, the, the necessary molecule is a high ApoB level. Everything around it can just make that accelerated and all. And, um, so I think they are, uh, insulin resistance is hugely important. Um, you know, it will shift your particle size to smaller and dense, but all sizes of LDL are atherogenic. That's been shown in large studies like MESA, and then Surprisingly, Dr. Ronald Krauss, MD, a lipidologist in Oakland, who used to argue that LDL size was hugely important in large, fluffy LDL wasn't atherogenic, has completely shifted his tune and agrees that all LDL particle sizes. So it's all important, and the best LDL to have is the lowest LDL within reason, because there is nobody that has an LDL, you know, of 10 uh, or under 10. Naturally, there are a few genetic disorders. Let me talk to you. So if I think the single, if we could just say five minutes right now, your listeners pay attention. You, Sean, I applaud. You went and got a calcium score. Took you a while. You did some labs. There are better labs you can do. 
but some of your listeners don't know what you had. There's a CT scanner. You lie down for about 15 seconds, $75, $100, maybe you'll pay 150 bucks out of pocket. And I don't know how well this projects. There's three hearts. The one to the left right there has no white in the heart arteries. There's no calcium. The one over here, the heart arteries look like a bone that you used to work on uh, in the operating room and hopefully we'll be working on again pretty soon. Those are aged calcified heart arteries. And there is no symptom that will predict that until you're 90% blocked. You don't want to wait till you're 90% blocked and having chest tightness when you're uh, making love or cutting the grass. You want to find out way upstream, way early. So this is a test, coronary artery calcium score. If you're following a carnivore diet, make sure you're a zero like Dr. Baker because it gives you some room to do some biohacking and some self-experimentation. I would be concerned if you were way over there with your left main and left anterior descending artery uh, terribly clogged up about you know, being too uh, free with self-experimentation. You did mention it, so I'll just show real quick. It's much harder to find a carotid ultrasound called a CIMT. I do them. It's, again, it, this is a book I wrote. I'll shameless plug, dead execs don't get bonuses. That It's a few bucks on Amazon, but it's an ultrasound of the neck. You make pictures of the arteries. It's a window to the arteries in the body. And with a computer, you can measure, and you're 50 years old. The report says your arteries are like a 40-year-old. Go do a little biohacking. The report comes back, your arteries are like a 72-year-old. I, I will show this. This is a report from a CIMT. Absolutely clean, clean, clean carotid arteries. If there was a 5% atherosclerotic plaque, the report would say it. And then there's other measures here that tell you at age 59 or 56, you're like a 50-year-old or an 80-year-old. That happens to be mine three weeks ago. I don't say that. I've worked very hard at it, and I have a history of a father with fairly early coronary disease, so I don't take it lightly that that's been the case. And if I had a bad result, I'd show it too, because you can't control everything with lifestyle. You can work very hard at it and hope to control it. So those are two tests. And then you mentioned you should have better than average lab tests. I have no ownership and no financial gain. I send labs to the Cleveland Clinic. It's just the best cardiac lab test. They're now owned by Quest. So anybody at a Quest Diagnostic Center, which is everywhere, the biggest lab company in America, can get the lipoprotein little a, the full inflammation panel, the particle uh, number on every particle out there. Soon you'll be able to get function of your HDL cholesterol, which we believe will be more accurate at allowing us to know if HDL is uh, doing its job of reverse transport than just particle number or uh, the total number. Things like that are just, and if you want to know your genetics, I, uh, I just, minutes ago, a 59-year-old exec left my office. Calcium score, he's not a carnivore, he's just a guy, he's not a vegan, he's just a guy. Calcium score, 90th percentile at age 59, his calcium score is 414 went through his labs. He has had treated hypertension and cholesterol for about 10 years, not by me, but appropriately, and his numbers are perfect uh, for that. But he's got three genetic markers. His lipoprotein A is high. He didn't know that. His, uh, it's a genetic marker called NP21 that doubles your risk of heart attack. Both his parents gave him the higher risk version, so he's homozygous. And he's got the ApoE4 heterozygous. But I had to sit down with him and say, we got to work on your lifestyle, which already was pretty good. 
because your parents gave you some garbage. That isn't all that common to get like three garbagey genetic results in one guy, you know, in one uh, blood draw. But stuff like that, the CAT scan and blood work, you might be out 250 bucks. And your listeners should biohack enough to have that baseline. If they're going to play with their diet or other aspects, you know, they, uh, they should get a starting point or at least where they are now. So, you know, when I think Dave Keto does post, CIMTs that he's had and all. And, you know, I actually see plaque regressing when people work hard on this or, we, you know, we have, I'm not completely anti-statin or anti-cholesterol medicine. Some of these have been, the new injectable cholesterol medicines are seemingly very safe and for certain people necessary. Uh, I'll always push lifestyle, but sometimes that just doesn't hack it completely. So, yeah, that's like a core body information. I'm glad we had seven seven, eight minutes to talk about. And, um, you know, I, I've written a million blogs called Dead Execs Don't Get Bonuses for anybody to read about. And it's not based, there's no, uh, uh, you know, emotional plea to immediately stop wearing leather and only eat broccoli sprouts. It's actually technology of cardiology that isn't taught in most family doctor and internal medicine clinics, unfortunately. Let me, uh, just LPA, what is your thought on LPA? Little a, that's kind of a new one on the block that people yeah. are talking about. How, how, how significant is that? Yeah, I think it's a big deal. So it's a cholesterol particle, LP little a, some people call it lipoprotein little a, and some people call it sticky cholesterol. Uh, because So anyways, it was discovered about 40 years ago. 20% of Americans are elevated. That's 65 million Americans. That's the people that you get patted on the back by your doctor. Your labs are great and you have a heart attack six months later, that's Bob Harper, the biggest loser fitness trainer who at age 51 last February had a massive heart attack and went on the Dr. Oz show and said, I never knew I inherited a kind of cholesterol. $22 blood test to have your family doc internist or just go to one of these online companies and get your LP little a. If you're, you know, there's two different ways to measure it, but if you're in the normal range, it's cool. But, you know, one lab under 75, one lab under 30 is the normal. And I have patients that are 400, 500, 350. And it clearly ages their arteries. That's not my impression. That's medical science. The biggest um, downfall and the reason it isn't part and parcel of a standard exam is we don't know for sure what to do with it. Linus Pauling, Ph.D., the vitamin C guru, and we can chat about vitamin C, had a theory that now there's animal data that a boatload of vitamin C can block your lipoprotein little a from ever doing you any harm. So some of my patients take a lot of vitamin C. Niacin, the B vitamin used at high enough dose, can drop lipoprotein little a. Nobody's ever done an outcome study. You can spend 30 cents a day and take a lot of niacin. You have to watch blood sugar, liver enzymes. You can get your lipoprotein A to fall a lot, but we presume that's good for you. Nobody's done the science, and you have to be careful you don't harm people. There's a couple other tricks there. There is an injectable cholesterol drug, Rapatha, Proluent. It's interesting. These are these drugs people have heard about $15,000 a year, but they just announced this morning they've cut the price in half, which is still a lot of money. But it's interesting that they uh, have buckled to public pressure to make them a little more affordable for people. They drop lipoprotein A. Um, there is a drug in development. It's an antibody to lipoprotein A. It's an antisense antibody that is kicking the nuts out of lipoprotein A. And the first 100 patients study went very well. When it comes out in two years, it'll probably be $20,000 a year, but we may have a new agent. Lifestyle doesn't do much. Statins don't lower it. Exercise doesn't lower it. 
there is a study that plant diets lowered 10%, but if you're starting at 300, that's not really a lot, you know. Joe, let me interject. I mean, just just to be a little selfish here, I don't know when you know when I released my labs and, they, and a lot of people commented on them. But one thing most people didn't notice: my lipoprotein little A was two. I mean, yeah, it was I, extremely I, low. So I I'm, that, you know, yeah. obviously I'm pretty pleased. Yeah, but I I have seen literature, and you you can look this up to confirm. There have been some studies looking at actually saturated fat. I know they did a study on palm oil actually lowering lipoprotein little A, which is kind of interesting. And so obviously yeah. I ingest a lot of whether I'm genetically really low or maybe. All the saturated fat I've been eating may have had an effect. I don't know. Again, there's a lot of things we don't know here. Let me let me shift gears a little bit with you. Um, you know, obviously you're 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 a proponent of a whole food, plant based diet, not just a vegan diet, because there are admittedly a lot of vegans that just eat a crappy diet and they're fat and they're sick and they have all kinds of health problems. There are there are, to my knowledge, you know, a fair number of vegans that that for whatever reason it didn't work for you know maybe they just didn't didn't want it to work you know right. boredom uh, social pressure uh, some of them claim legitimate health claims but we do see at least a percentage of people that try that diet that don't do well on that and so I think uh, you know obviously not one diet fits all we can't we can't mandate that that everybody goes on a plant based diet because certainly some people are just not going to thrive that way and they're going to want to. Uh, you know, salt, and maybe these synthetic meats will be the, the 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 panacea for all of our all of our concerns. What do you What do you? I mean, you acknowledge that there are people that go on a plant based diet that it just doesn't work for, correct? Absolutely, and you know, you scratch your head and you take a dietary history, and you know, some of them it, they weren't supplementing with B12, and you can do I, the one I'm really, and I, and that's not just vegans. Omega three deficiency, I think, is pretty pervasive. And I check that blood test in my meat eaters, my fish eaters, and plant eaters, and it's very common to be severely deficient in omega-3, and it'll impact your triglycerides and your insulin sensitivity and inflammation, and it's easily correctable with either foods that are high in omega-3 or supplements if needed. But, um, you know, uh, I, again, we could talk about the microbiome. I think you and I will conclude there's more we need to know. It's critically important, and it's a center of so much of our health, but... Is there a test right now that we actually have confidence in that will guide us and uh, uh, lead us to the, uh, the diet that's most in keeping with our physiology or our genome or whatever? And I don't think microbiome testing is there yet. Um, you know, there's no doubt in five days or two weeks, you can dramatically change your microbiome with a change in diet uh, for the worse or for the better. There's actually been that one study where they switched in two weeks horrible diet to healthy plant strong diet and back and forth that the change in the microbiome and what's called the metabolome the metabolic metabolic profile two weeks later changes dramatically so if you're on a crap diet you're two weeks away from having a healthy gut and maybe you know a healthier upgrade why some you know that's why so there's a concept we all know pack years of smoking one pack per day 40 years 40 pack years that's more risk of lung cancer and heart disease than 10 pack years and not as much as 80 pack years there's a brand new concept in cardiology that's very cool called plaque years, P-L-A-Q-U-E. Where's your LDL been? How many years has it been? The best deal is to have a, a, a modestly low or very low LDL as long as you can, and there are SNPs or genetic alterations that keep your LDL even just a little bit lower than the average public. You will have a dramatically lower um, uh, risk of coronary heart disease. Starting a statin at age 50 may give you 10 years of improvement, Having an LDL that's low from age 10, 
or in my case, adopting a plant diet that's favored my cholesterol since age 18, that's plaque years. So I actually talk about flax years, because if you've been a vegan for a year, to think that you're not at risk for serious disease is just immature in you know medical reasoning. And the flip side is to eat a carnivore diet and say, I know 10 years from now I will be as healthy as I am now and aging will be good and colorectal cancer and brain health and heart disease. The answer is we don't know the answer to that question. You know, it's a area under the curve of what you're doing and how long you're doing it. So, um, you know, the, some of these people that fall off the plant bandwagon, we're eating junky, we're supplementing. Beyond that, is it a microbiome? Is it genetics? Is it um, they just weren't in the game long enough? But yeah, we still have a problem with obesity. When I have 700 people at a lecture in Detroit for our plant-based support group, I'm not going to tell you every one of them is at an optimal BMI. Uh, uh, you know, they're there because they're struggling, and you know whether they have undiagnosed thyroid disease or stress or emotional eating or poor sleep or sleep apnea, but something's keeping them from achieving really the goal they're looking for. And some of them don't come back. I wouldn't bullshit you and say, you know, we hit a home run with everybody all the time. But for most people looking for weight control, blood pressure control, cholesterol control, three weeks, six weeks, eight weeks of a really serious whole food plant-based diet will harm nobody. And very often will rejuvenate a lot of people's, you know, success at this stuff. Let me, Joel, let me ask you a question. What, in your view, I mean, LDL obviously has a role in atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, right? That's clear. But what what does LDL do? I mean, why do we have LDL? And then also I'd like you to comment on the fact that there are at least associational studies, observational studies, are showing that people over a particular age, low LDL may be associated with, yeah. uh, you know, all-cause mortality being up with low LDL, with different sort of different, you know, cancers, neurodegenerative diseases. What are your thoughts on those sort of associations? Yeah. And, and, and why do we think we have LDL? Yeah, so, I mean, again, a plant eater will ingest no cholesterol, but still will have a blood cholesterol level that could be 130, could be 270, because our liver will continue to make it, and it's genetically partly controlled by how many LDL receptors we have on the surface of our cells. And now we know there's something called PCSK9 and how much of that we have in our blood. We still are learning more and more about that. Um, you know, we make cholesterol to be the backbone of vitamin D and sex steroids and uh, cortisol and such. Um, but how much do we need? I mean, Lauren Cordain wrote a famous paper in 2004 that the average hunter-gatherer LDL was 50 to 70, and that's kind of an optimal balance of enough to produce what you need, but not too much to expose you to excess risk. The founder of the paleo movement, some people would say Boyd Eaton, MD, talked about hunter-gatherer cholesterols of 50 to 60 LDL as being both common and kind of optimal. And that's kind of where the cardiology world is too, interestingly, as kind of optimal levels. So there is a balance. I mean, there are genetic uh, conditions. You may have talked about this in your podcast, people heard it otherwise, where you do run an LDL of 30 for life, and the biggest problem you have is a low risk of coronary heart disease and no other uh, identifiable problems. So uh, nobody's zero, but 50 to 70 would be a good range. Now, do you need an LDL of 150, 180 to get even better at vitamin D, testosterone, and rest? You don't. And, and all that. So what happens? We believe the LDL, there is a receptor on... Uh, endothelial cells or the wall of artery cells that uh, can take uh, ApoB up into the uh, endothelial cell. It gets into the intima or the inner 
layers of the artery wall. Uh, little macrophages love to eat that stuff up because it's you know kind of an odd uh, compound. All of a sudden, you got a foam cell and you get cholesterol crystals. That's where, you know, and then you get oxidized LDL if your antioxidant status isn't favorable or you live in an area with dirty environmental uh, air because air pollution has actually come out as a very serious issue. That's where probably lead and other heavy metal toxicity it stuns your ability to have proper antioxidant response to some LDL under. But a lot of it is just mass effect. If your LDL is 170 or your LDL is uh, particularly particle number, if you want to do the advanced one, is far less than that. There just simply won't be as much entering your subintimal space and inciting the whole inflammatory pathway. So, um, you know, uh, you know, but it's also possible to have just apolipoprotein, uh, excuse me, lipoprotein little a or LP little a as the uh, as the conjugate that gets in your artery. So, I mean, I think that uh, I'm trying to remember the rest of your uh, question there, but. Um, well, I just I just pointed out that there are you know observational studies where they look at LDL. Oh, yeah, and they see that's that where low, that life, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's a, you know a lot of people point out I, I'm, you know it's hard to be expert on everything, but something called reverse causation, you know, which is as we age, um, uh, you know, your your it's possible that your appetite isn't as good and your cholesterol is falling or. There may be health conditions. Uh, what you know, you're familiar in the hospital with sick you thyroid syndrome, where you actually functionally become hypothyroid or uh, other perturbations of your thyroid function. So your cholesterol may fall secondarily to uh, loss of interest in diet, other medical conditions, and therefore there's a low cholesterol in an 82 year old who's dead a year later. Did the low cholesterol directly cause the death? Was the low cholesterol a function of uh, you know a complex kind of aging process. Um, most of the data uh, is that even as senior people on statins who have coronary heart disease with low cholesterol, the benefit risk ratio is favors benefit. So I'm pretty happy. Uh, when you look, we had a description last year of a tribe in Bolivia that we learned a lot from called the Chimane, the, uh, these people that they eat what was it, 72% of their diet is carbs and the rest is fat and protein and they live in the jungle. They have like this freedom from coronary disease and these calcium scores are zero, higher than any other population. But you know, they run cholesterol, 130, 140 in their 80s and they don't have heart disease, their brains seem pretty good. So um, I, I would impugn reverse causation to explain a lot of what we're seeing there. Now I will tell you, there is disagreement. I, I was called yesterday by a Detroit uh, MD, who many would call one of the sharpest functional medicine doctors in the world, uh, leads training programs around the world in functional medicine, who called me concerned on your therapy, Mr. So-and-so's cholesterol is 125, his LDL particle number is 900, kind of optimal guy's had a previous infarct. I'm very worried about his brain, can you let his cholesterol go up? And I had a fight with her about that, and for now, I called him, his memory's sharp, and I didn't completely agree with her argument. but. To say that everybody agrees with what I just said is not true because I had a I had to fight my way through that yesterday on a couple texts and phone calls with a fellow physician. I don't know if you saw a study came out recently looking at 20-year uh, survival rates on post-MI patients and the ones that had l chronically low LDL over a period of 20 years had a worse outcome. Did you see that study? I don't know if you saw that. No, I didn't see that. Um, okay. I would have to look at that and think it through. There was, and again, you know, not all the best science means it came out this week, but there is a study out this week 
you know, most statin trials and cholesterol trials look at four years, five years. Uh, the American Heart talks about 10-year risk. This week, a study came out looking at 30-year follow-up of cholesterol lowering, and it had much, it was primary prevention, which is the hot button. You know, what kind of cholesterol control do we need in people who haven't had a bypass, a stent, a heart attack, a stroke, or a carotid endorectomy? And the 30-year control in primary prevention using uh, lipid-lowering therapies was very effective because, again, that's the point that I'm pleading with your followers is don't, you know, I don't expect you to change your diet at the end of this conversation and say, he's right, Baker's wrong, we were fools, we, we were going to start eating tempeh, not steak. I'm not that stupid. But these processes take years and years to show benefit, years and years to show harm. Just monitor your health status. And the cardiovascular part, you know, is really inexpensive. Do it once a year. You don't need a calcium score once a year, but you might try and get a carotid study. I will tell you, I have a, a zillion patients with a calcium score of zero and some uh, atherosclerotic plaque and thickening on CIMT. It's a really early phase of atherosclerosis, but it's a very uh, available thing to follow up if you can find a center that does it well. Doctor, yeah. Con, if I could just yeah. quick ask before I forget to like, uh, are you still there? Yeah. <laughs> hey, you know, it's, it's one of those things I try to remember that most people would pay a good amount of money to sit down with any one of you. So I'm sitting down with both of you for free. So I'm just trying to <laughs> remember that. But I, I do have a question um, that came up when you met, when you mentioned the, the day spring Atia interview. Um, uh, did you listen to all of that by any chance? Or most Probably of it, it's a long haul. Four, four, yeah, four and a half of the seven hours so far, right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. It was um, one thing I kind of found interesting that I was wondering if you could maybe uh, fill us in on is I think they mentioned, if I remember right, because they were talking about Dave Feldman's uh, carterary scan, and right. um, they were saying something about how that that wouldn't necessarily be – like, because he had a good one in relation to his uh, ketogenic protocol um, – in the presence of the really high LDLs and they had, they poked holes into some of that with like, well, this could be this going on or that going on. Like, do you have any info on that? Like what could be, what, what would be a red flag if someone got one of those scans done and it said, you know, really good. Um, like what, what, what would be an indicative that that would maybe not be necessarily a hundred percent accurate? Well, I mean, if you do some advanced cholesterol inflammatory markers, genetics if you want if you have a calcium score once and it's zero or very close to zero and you have a ci if you can find a center that does cint they are cash pay they're not insurance covered except in the state of texas you'll find it a little more frequent and insurance covered if you go through that process and you are very favorable i mean i frankly eat what you want if you don't consider the environment do some biohacking i mean you can't get better precision than that. Now, you, you can miss a little soft plaque on a calcium score, which you can potentially pick up on the carotid, which is what I see a lot. So I don't have any argument with Dave uh, showing that data and identify. I want to know what he looks like in a year, or it might mm -hmm. take two if his LDL or LDL particle number stays up, you know, uh, 200. Um, uh, you know, and I know Atia didn't really agree with overall Dave's uh, hypothesis that, you know, that it, it recurrently comes up despite a hundred years of research that somebody will get headlines. Cholesterol doesn't matter. It's thrombosis. That's an article that was in the headlines about three weeks ago. Ten years before that, the same author says it's inflammation. It's frankly, it's all of it. And they actually are to some degree intertwined. But, you know, our most 
our most I think Sean had enough he's leaving our most <laughs> modif- our most modifiable and directly you know injurious factor in atherosclerosis is keeping your LDL down and I mean there's always rogue voices and I take exception with a couple low carb cardiologists out there but I mean I always say if you follow I'll call it the carnivore program and you accidentally eat too much broccoli and cauliflower and uh, pinto beans, I can guarantee you the side effect is maybe intestinal gas, but uh, I don't think you're going to be disappointed with your results out there. You know, if you don't monitor these things and you jump into a low-carb, high-fat diet without monitoring, and you're the hyper-responder that goes to a total cholesterol of 500, which happens, maybe 20, 25%, or you don't monitor, you know, or you follow a carnivore, carnivore, not carnivore diet, um, and you don't monitor some lab work and at least be curious enough, you know, you, you, you do have some risk uh, to your health. Uh, you know, we don't have case reports of people dropping dead on Sean's program. And, uh, you know, and again, my I don't have cases of bowel impaction because they had too many broccoli sprouts in my camp. But uh, I think the risk is a little lower if you're not willing to monitor the science of what you're doing. Joel, I think those are some great comments. And I think that, um, you know, this is the thing that, uh, you know, right now, I mean, some of the biggest criticisms of, of this carnivorous approach, whether, you know, whether or not, and I certainly don't promote that everyone needs to do this. I think there are some people that it benefits for. It seems to be effective for people dealing with things like autoimmune issues, you know, Crohn's disease, ulcer colitis. Those things tend to tend to be do very favorable. Some people are noticing some improvements in athletic performance, probably due to increased protein and some of the you know, the uh, in performance enhancing things that are known to be in meat like creatine and some of these other molecules that are in there, you know, heme iron, uh, you know, the amino acid profiles and all those types of things. But um, the fact that, you know, the one thing about the CIMT is, you know, you got to have a technologist, that's, you know, yeah. it's a little bit yeah. dependent on the technologist. So you got to have a guy that's dialed in on that stuff. So there's a little bit of slop in the variation yeah. on how yeah. that's going to be yeah. year to year. But I do agree that that does seem to be a strategy. If you say, I don't really care you know, my, my LDL shot up to 160 or 180 and, but I, I feel the best I've felt in years and you would, and you would rather trade, you know, future risk versus how I feel today. And I think there's, you know, again, the best predictor for cardiovascular disease or a heart attack is probably a previous heart attack. You know I mean? Yeah. You know, yeah. the best predictor of back pain is going to be previous back pain. So we know, you know, that that's a pretty good heuristic to say, you know, your health today is the best predictor of what it's going to be like tomorrow. So if we're in a really good place, and, you know, we sort of disagree on the biomarkers, then I think, you know, the next best answer is to really get these these tests like the CIMT, the CAC score every 5, 10 years or whatever, whatever the interval that's recommended. And I think that's that's where people can take a little bit of solace and say, hey, I'm invested in my health and I want to feel good today, but at the same time, I don't want to die in 20 years. Because honestly, as you said at the beginning of the program, we're never going to have a 50-year randomized control trial where we lock people up in metabolic wards and, and restrict their diet and control every other variable. It's never going to happen. So the best we can do is kind of speculate as to what may be the best diet yeah. for humanity. I mean, you know, you can you can take into the fact that the, the animal studies, the mouse studies, uh, you know, the epidemiology, some of the short-term biomarker RCTs. But again, we, we're never going to really get that that true answer. And so you're kind of at a point where you know you can say let's let's evaluate my health today let's let's look at all these factors and i think some of the subjective stuff is important how do i feel how do i look what's my body composition like how's my digestion how's my mood do i wake up with an erection every day how's my libido all those things you know as you talk about you know erectile dysfunction is a, is a very is a canary in the coal mine for, for vascular disease i mean we know that's true and i can tell you 
You know, my own personal experience, meat has not in any way encumbered that, despite what PETA says and some of the stuff. And one of the problems I take, and it's not directed at you, but I do see a lot of what I think is misleading propaganda out there. And and that's where I really, you know, when I get out there and I see these ads about, you know, putting a cow in a bed between two people saying that meat's going to kill you. (laughs) Kill your sex drive, and I'm not seeing that. I mean, and again, yeah. again, again, this is a lot of anecdotal stuff, but we're getting to a point where we now have thousands of anecdotes, and so now we're at this hypothesis-generating stage. I do agree that science needs to be done on this stuff. Hopefully, it'll get funded. I'm happy to try to start to try to try to uh, you know push for that. Maybe we have to go to the damn beef industry to get money because they got some money, and it might might behoove them to do it. And of course, that would be criticized due to funding sources. But right. at least get it off the ground, get some of these studies done. And then, then it can be independently verified later. But I mean, yeah. I think uh, now you, you said know, you said a lot, you had a lot of wisdom there, and I do actually want an affidavit from that French girlfriend of yours to verify some <laughs> of your bravado. Uh, if you hopefully you still have that French girlfriend, I, I, um, she was just saying hi a minute ago. In fact, okay, very nice. That's why you that's why you fell off the chair. She probably sent you a picture. Ooh la la. Uh, <laughs> um, so just again to make some impact on your listeners. You know, let's just say that erectile dysfunction can be three to four years before you're in the emergency room having a heart attack, stent bypass, or drop dead. Don't ignore it. Don't just get Viagra. Ask your doc for these tests. It's the canary in the coal mine. You can go read about what that means. It's an obscure old reference. You can have a crease in your earlobe. It's called diagonal earlobe crease. It's the craziest damn thing a doctor in New York described 50 years ago. I think when I see heart patients, I notice this funny crease that I don't notice in other people. And now it's been verified by advanced cardiac testing. It can be 60, 70% accurate. You just, your earlobe's got a funny line. If you don't know what it looks like, Google it or look at Steven Spielberg's earlobes. He's got a very deep crease, and hopefully somebody's told him that. And I'm sure he's had pretty advanced care there at the Barbara Streisand Center or something. Um, there's a few others. Actually, premature balding, premature gray uh, are subtle, but the science is there. So let's, uh, let's help your, your viewers, your listeners, you know, uh, have a little heads up. The data about meat and erectile dysfunction uh, is less than robust because I look at that data when I write papers. There are data on diet and sexual function, and fruit and vegetables show up very positively, polyphenol-rich fruits, grapes and uh, peppers and such. But um, we, we don't have any intervention trials that absolutely prove change your diet to A, B, or C, even Mediterranean diet and sexual function response. We have lots of isolated case reports, and I get that in my clinic uh, as a frequent benefit of standard American diet, in my case, the whole food plant-based diet, and there will be a response. Endothelial function is better, nitric oxide production is better. Eat beets, eat watermelon, uh, eat arugula if you're uh, you know, allowing uh, fruits and veggies in your diet. They're very powerful nitric oxide boosters. Don't use Listerine and Scope. It kills the microbiome of your mouth and you won't make one of the sources of making nitric oxide. Don't take protonics or Prilosec if you don't need to. You won't make nitric oxide to the same degree. A few little subtle, uh, subtle uh, little lessons there. Um, I agree with you. We need science. You know, um, uh, would Michaela and Jordan Peterson uh, have had the same response if they went to True North in Santa Rosa and did water fasting for two, three weeks to dramatically alter their microbiome and enter into a whole food plant-based diet afterwards, as many people with similar illnesses that they have, have done. You know, don't know. They needed to do something. It sounded like their lives were miserable. And it's, you know, that's what I honor. These are real people that I think you know, are authentic and they feel better 
that drives the question, you know, do we totally ridicule what your group is doing or do we ask the question, you know, what's what's happening here? Are there other routes that get there? Is this the only route that gets you there? Don't know the answer. I'd put them on a water fast or Dr. Longo's fasting mimicking diet, which seems to change the microbiome in about five days rather dramatically. It's some unpublished data, but I'm a big fan of this five-day plant-based fast for uh, many benefits. Uh, a little easier to do than water fasting. But yeah, we need research. We, you know, we need follow-up, uh, even limited case reports. Um, you know, should the public embrace the carnivore diet? I, you know, my biggest concern besides health issues is the repeated messages we're getting, and none of them are perfect from Oxford and others at the IPCC. I don't know what that stands for. And we've got 12 years or 20 years to seriously look at the purity of our air, our water, our forests, um, our greenhouse gases. And, you know, the European Union published this morning, doesn't mean it's the best data, just the most recent data. The single biggest source of greenhouse gas emission in EU is by far dairy and meat. Far less is it automobile, airplane, train, trucks. And, uh, you know, you can take a look at that data and decide if you want to, you know, if a factor in your overall health is the health of the world you live in, as Ted Turner said, you know, so succinctly with his southern drawl. So yeah, Ted Turner, if I'm not mistaken, owns a bunch of buffalo ranches yeah. up in Montana. But, you yeah. know, the IPC is the International Panel on Climate and Change. I've read I've read a lot of their data. In fact, you know, Joel, as an advocate for, for people eating meat, believe it or not, I've spent a lot of time looking at some of these environmental things. And so what we, what clearly stands out, from what I've seen in the data, in US APA data, certainly this is. I think this is some of the some of the problem we have here is that, you know, when we look at developed countries like the United States, when we look at our animal agriculture output, you know, when we look at when we when we strictly talk about carbon footprints, you know, carbon, uh, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gas equivalents, which includes methane, nitrous oxide, and all that stuff, we see that. In the U.S., you know, the cattle industry produces about 1.9 percent of our of our cattle emissions. You know, and 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 other industries are bigger. Now, if you go to less developed countries like Africa, animal agriculture is going to be a huge impact there. And so, it it, it although it's a worldwide issue, it's a very regional specific uh, type of problem. And so, you know, when we talk about impacting the rainforest in Brazil, eating a steak in the U.S. really has really very little impact on that. The problem is. You know, the country itself has a lot of issues with corruption. They have a lot of things where they sh- they're they doing these things that they shouldn't do. Uh, they have to change their practices uh, for going forward. You know, th- if you look at the data going back 100 years and you look at land usage, which includes forestry and animal agriculture and, and plant agriculture, we see that the contribution of greenhouse gases has been relatively, you know, flat for the most part over 100 years. But we see the contribution of fossil fuels has gone up just tremendously you know and and i think that i think it's a little misleading to put all the all the all the all the blame on eating a steak when when truly it i mean really i mean I, and i i'd have to look at the study you quoted about europe but the data i have seen shows it clearly fossil fuels and i think most of the you know non-nutritional you know people that have yeah. non-nutritional interests the actual uh environmental folks will say that greenhouse gases are, are by, by and large caused by fossil fuels. And, and again, yeah. the argument is, how do, we, how do we come off of that? That's just as hard because we've still got to get from point A to point B. So there's yeah. no real easy solution. And uh, that's, that's just so you can find it. That's October okay. 23rd. I mean, Science Daily isn't the original source. It's a journal called Global Food Security. Sure. Sure. The role of trade in greenhouse gas footprints. Yeah. No, I mean, again, I think 
we need to be concerned. Uh, you know, again, is it all YOLO? You've got kids. My kids are a little older. I will tell you, my wife has texted me. Nobody can touch your sexuality, big boy. So I just wanted to voice that in. Um, yeah, I mean, who knows? We'll probably have dinner one day with the two. <laughs> Well, I think it is one of those things, too. It's like regardless of whether you're you know, pro, get as much meat in your diet as possible or minimize it as much as possible or eliminate it. It's like, it's like anything when we have these wide-scale production-type setups. It's, is there room for improvement? Certainly. Um, and then the question to me is like, is it something that is scary enough or something that we should be, be – be pointed enough where we're jumping in and eliminating something that's been in place for quite a while, or is it something that we just need to uh, improve, improve and uh, look at? Like, well, how does this work? I think it's really easy for humans to kind of pull themselves away from uh, where we are in terms of a holistic planet, and it's you know when we try to think like we're we're not part of that, that's where we run into right. issues, and then and then it's like you know I think a, like. Uh, what the planet maybe looked like before transportation. And it certainly was teeming with ruminants and teeming with large creatures that were belching and farting and pooping. And it's like, you know, well, why, why is the massive increase now then? And, I, you know, the big elephant in the room is definitely transportation. And if you want to tie transportation to meat production, you know, fine, then we need to look at ways to maybe localize it. Maybe we need to do more hunting and harvesting this meat ourselves versus, you know, paying for it to come from another country or something like that. Um, I think these are all really interesting issues that that should be brought up. And um, regardless, if you believe the studies that come out that say, you know, reducing meat is going to clean up the the environment or not, at least it's kind of shining a light on on stuff that will let the average person who doesn't have time to really, you know, spend two, three hours a day to look into the research and stuff. At least they know like, oh, you know, maybe I should buy local. Maybe I should look into hunting if I want to eat meat or something like that. And uh, consider stuff as opposed to just like live with a uh, complete ignorance. Yeah. Joel, let me, let me change gears and I'm sorry, Zach, but I mean, I just, I was just thinking of something, you know, um, I know you've talked about Walter Longo and fasting and fasting mimetic type protocols. I know, I guess he, is he trying to patent his, patent his macronutrient ratio, which I find kind of interesting. <laughs> yeah. I think that's probably, good. He probably has about 40, 50 patents. And the first, patented program to extend lifespan is his five-day fasting mimicking diet that was awarded about six weeks ago extend uh, lifespans in, in who uh and it's a, it's a u.s patent it's the only well, I mean, who, who is it, who's, whose life is it extended i mean i don't think we have any i've not yet seen anybody walk around at 150 years old looking good yet i'm still waiting for that to happen before i i buy into some of this longevity stuff but let's go back to fasting i think you've kind of yeah. and i heard you talked about that and there's a lot of talk around is fasting good for us? And I think your your sense of the thing is, yes, it probably is beneficial. Now, yeah. I would like to see your comments on the fact that I've seen a number of fasting studies which show an acute increase in LDL when, when a fast occurs. Have you, have you aware of any of those studies? There was, a, there was a study, I'd have to pull it up looking at a week-long fast where it showed yeah. an increase in LDL of about 36%. What would account yeah. for that? And what are your thoughts on that particular uh, scenario? Yeah. So just a, a brief synthesis why I'm interested. I mean, it's the science has progressed from one time I was in medical school and you were in medical school that, you know, aging is the single biggest risk factor for chronic disease because most of these diabetes, dementia, uh, cancer and heart disease occur more in the elderly than in the youth. 
just yeah. to interject, I would argue that disease is aging. I think it's almost the yeah. other way around. I think yeah. chronic disease equals aging, and it's you know, and I think that's if you can avoid chronic disease, you can largely avoid a lot of a lot of what we consider aging, in my view. Right, and the other statement is that with that, uh, you know, only in the last twenty years, and specifically the Nobel Prize in Medicine two years ago, that we have an internal mechanism of promoting longevity and reversing damage called autophagy, and the single most efficient way, high intensity exercise does it, uh, uh, infrared sauna may do it, certain supplements like quercetin may favor from uh, onions, garlic, and apples, but uh, calorie restriction or complete fasting triggers uh, this renewal, regeneration, stem cell-based regeneration more than anything. The question is, do you eat nothing? It takes three, four, five days to start to get the benefits. Do you do a water fast? Do you do you know, complete uh, deprivation or... Can you innovate something that allows this process? Chronic overnutrition, chronic overeating is suppressing our ability to repair our body, which is why I favor fasting. I can measure it in patients' weight, C-reactive protein, blood pressure, uh, and often just their uh, reports that they don't hurt as much, which is probably stem cell-based regeneration. And placebo effect is true in many treatments. So anyways, I'm a, a big fan of what Dr. Longo has done. Do We know in yeast and in mice, and in earthworms and in primates, his program extends life. We'll probably never have a handle on that in, uh, hum in human biology, but um, uh, the ongoing and exciting data for animal-based now research trials of multiple sclerosis, type 2 diabetes, uh, cognitive impairment are all ongoing, but the animal base is very favorable. I am not aware, because Longo data is three-month follow-up cholesterol, which does drop, LDL drops, C-reactive protein drops, stem cells go up. Um, I'm not aware day-to-day. -day. They didn't do it. I don't monitor cholesterol ever day-to-day. -day. I don't have the little finger poke. I send advanced panels to the lab. So I don't know. You know, like you said, there's a lot of variability. What's happening in the microbiome that your LDL goes up when you're not eating, if that's a reproducible finding? Unknown to me. Yeah, I mean, there's a study came out. I, you know, I, I try to look, maybe locate it, locate it for you. Um, just some, just some general topics. Um, you know, and I think I know what your answer is going to be. So, so I say, in general, if you're less obese, would you argue you are more healthy? Yeah, you're less likely to develop cancer, type two diabetes, degenerative problems of the spine and hips, um, and to some degree, coronary heart disease because of type 2 diabetes, blood pressure. Yeah. What about lower triglycerides? Is that a benefit to have lower triglycerides? Yes. It's you know a reasonably good marker of insulin sensitivity, and we had this recent uh, uh, um, uh, EPA intervention trial of people with moderate triglyceride elevation that was lowered and at a fairly important advantage on top of statin therapy. That's a pharmaceutical, not a lifestyle trial, but you know it did impress us that uh, either using lifestyle or using uh, pharmacology. Now, I will say when Dr. Dean Ornish demonstrated on the highest degree of coronary angiogram called quantitative coronary angiography, that plaque was actually disappearing from coronary arteries, triglycerides were higher on the diet than they were, and, the, and he used four grams of omega-3 with the diet, so it wasn't omega-3 deficiency. Uh, triglycerides went up and coronary arteries got better and stress tests got better and symptoms got better, hospitalizations went down. So uh, there may be exceptions uh, where interventions cause triglycerides to go up from 75 to 175, they don't go sky high, and yet there are serious, serious clinical improvements. 
What about uh, like markers of inflammation, like high sensitivity C-reactive protein? Lower is better in, in your view? Yeah, I don't think there's any question. You know, and I'm a functional medicine trained cardiologist, so if you're elevated, you know, next up is why psoriasis, dental infection, nutrient deficiency, um, obesity. Exercise, you know. Exercise, yeah, right, the yeah. whole gamut. So. What, what about uh, your, your thoughts on insulin? Uh, insulin sensitivity, overall insulin level, is it better to be that to be more sensitive and lower? Would you say that's also a benefit? Yeah, without question. Whether it's the root cause of cardiovascular or coronary heart disease, or I think it's a it's one of the daggers. It's not the only dagger, but uh, yes, and uh, you know it goes hand in hand with processed food, hand in hand with central obesity, um, and something that can be remedied with lifestyle improvement in lean bodies for sure. Yeah, I, mean, I have I have I just give a shot clock. I have a patient in five minutes, so perfect. Uh, you know we can wrap it up. I've enjoyed the conversation. I just don't want to go over. Yeah, I'm just, Joel, I mean, just the things you comment on, I mean, those improvements are what I've seen largely in folks adopting a carnivorous diet with lower obesity, better triglycerides, lower C-reactive protein, better insulin. So I think it's interesting. Uh, you know, the, the, the thought is we don't have any long-term studies on this particular cohort. You know, we have, we have the standard American meat eater, which obviously there's a lot of confounders. They tend to be obese. They tend to, to, to tend towards insulin resistance. They tend to have high blood pressure. So I think we have a different cohort. So only time will tell. Now again, I will concede that we don't have we don't have the data yet, but it's just an interesting. So maybe you'll concede that maybe this this cohort of population may not be as bad off as you might lead us lead us to believe. And then maybe we can say that maybe it's not, you know, meat that's a bad guy necessarily, or certainly meat's not as bad as, uh, you know, the, the seed oils and the sugars and and the processed refined you know donuts and stuff like that and maybe we can come to come to that sort of yeah. agreement again again the data will have to be out there eventually to maybe sway everyone's mind but i think we've got to start we've got a hypothesis um i certainly uh thank you for coming on joel maybe we can have a part two because i think there's so much more we can cover on this stuff and uh I, you know i know you gotta go see some patients i appreciate it and good luck with your medical license and yeah i agree there's i think we did a lot of good for people in your tribe and uh let's follow up do you go to Paleo FX, Sean? I, I haven't yet. I mean, I might. I might start. I know I've been. I've been asked to do some speaking at some of these things, so yeah. I'll probably start doing that uh, probably in the coming year. And so yeah, it's, uh, a, it's it's in Austin in April. Yeah. The only reason I say I'm trying to get myself on the agenda. Why don't we just get on the program together? I just emailed them, and I own a food truck. I own a food truck in Austin, I and. I don't, know what we're gonna, I don't know what we can serve you. We have really good bottled water you can have in my food. <laughs> Joel, I went to college in Austin. I can tell you, oh, wow. the, the Salt Lake is pretty good if you want to get barbecue. <laughs> All right, man. Well, thanks. Appreciate right. it. Go see your thanks, patients, Dr. man. Go, go, save some, go save some lives. Bye, guys. Take care. Hey, folks. Thanks again for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Just a couple quick notes before you leave. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find us at hpopodcast at gmail.com. That's hpopodcast at gmail.com. We're both also on social media. On Twitter, you can find me at zbitter. That's at Z-B-I-T-T-E-R. And you can find Sean at sbakermd. That's at S-B-A-K-E-R-M-D. We're both also on Instagram where you can find me at Zach Bitter, that's at Z-A-C-H-B-I-T-T-E-R. And for Sean, it's at Sean Baker, 1967. 
That's at S-H-A-W-N-B-A-K-E-R 1967. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast.